Okay. So, for the past almost month now, well, actually probably three weeks or a month, we've kind of had a gear shift where we have been doing so much work with the youth retreat and open house and all that that we have um, in general just had our nose to the grindstone which causes us to pause our Bible studies and all that stuff and our intellectual learning for a while and so for me I've had the same stuff in a loop to think about I, because we haven't been looking at new stuff constantly and so I've been thinking about Narnia and C.S. Lewis and our topic on the youth retreat um, and just that it comes up things that I see that are relatable to it and um, I wanted to um, kind of mold those ideas of the youth retreat and the silver chair and C.S. Lewis together tonight. So, does anybody remember what our theme was for the youth retreat? Okay, what was it? It says, do you want me to read it? Sure. Okay. So teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts into wisdom. Okay, what does that mean? Okay, yes. Yes. Okay. So what do those things mean to you? In your own words that you learned at the youth retreat. Okay, good. Anybody else? What was our uh, fun part of the youth retreat? Like all of our activities, what were they? Okay. How does that apply? Why did we pick that to go with our verse? Because we only had so much time to do Okay, you only had that minute, right? And we applied that that moment to moment. Each moment that you have matters. Um, and if the moment that you are in right now, that matters, right? The moment that you're in right now. Everyone says yes. Okay. Why does this moment that you're in, or even the next moment that you're in, matter the most to you? Right. You have no ability to change the past, and even less ability to to 
predict or knowingly make a decision to guarantee the future, right? You can, we operate in with the idea, the concept that we are trying to mold our future or have an effect on it, but you really don't have a ability to say, well, I'm going to make sure that I have a house that is yellow with trees all around it. I'm going to make sure. You might be able to do that, but it's not guaranteed, right? Um, and of course, everyone says, you know, you can't change the past. Who is it? Um, Rafiki in Lion King says, it's in the past, it doesn't matter. Because there's nothing you can do about it. That's basically the sentiment of it. He said, it's, you only have the future and now to affect. Um, so when someone says now, this moment, that this is the time right now that matters the most, You've probably heard somebody say that before with something or in a story. It makes you feel like that moment is grand and big and, oh my gosh, this is the most important thing ever. And then that moment is in the past and what is, does it feel like the most important thing ever? Differing opinions? Well, it could be yes. It'd be like if you picked your major in college and that was a super important decision when you made it and then it affects the rest of your life and then you look back and you can recognize that was super important decision. That was super important time. Right, so that would be a yes. How about if you are starving? Like actually... I, I hate to say actually starving, but maybe like so hungry that your stomach hurts. Has anybody been there before? Like, okay. Does making the decision to eat something really matter? Is it the most important thing in that moment? Um, it could be, right? It Unless, may, unless like a wolf is chasing you, that might be the most important decision in that moment to say, I need to eat something now so I feel better and I will not feel junky the rest of the day and that, because that will affect how I do everything else. So it could be the most important, but that is a moment where then you eat something and an hour, two hours later, you forgot that you even felt like that, right? It doesn't matter anymore. And, but that doesn't mean that that wasn't an important decision, but it's a very mundane, like an everyday thing that you have to do, right? You have to feed yourself, you have to eat every day. And it, it's an important decision to make, but it's not something that is monumental in your life. Um, but when you put all of those moments together, when you choose, well, I'm going to eat this 
today I'm going to make sure that I drink now, and I'm going to drink some water another hour and a half, and another hour, I'm going to make sure that I go to sleep on time. That Doing those things helps you to stay healthy, right? Helps you to do the things that you have to do. And as a whole, that stuff kind of wraps up together to make a quality aspect of your life, that your health is a part of your health being quality. Well, we can also think about that, about your personality and who you are. Um, This is something that maybe they talk about in school, but I would guess they don't talk about character too much. Use that word, character. Anybody? You guys can tell me. Probably nobody gets up in front of, uh, at like a school assembly and tells you, you guys all, we want you to have good character. No, probably not. It's probably more like, be be true to yourself or, you know, something like that. My school did that a long time ago and then... Be now, true to yourself? No, character. Oh, character. Yeah. Right. It's kind of falling... It's kind of fall into this wayside. What does good character mean? If you hear that, what are some of the qualities that you would say that person has good character? Or how about you could say it even more simply that they are a good person. The essence of who they are. It's good. Okay, like what ways? What ways are they acting? Okay, I mean, yes, that's true. Maybe a better word that we could use out of the Bible would be kindness, right? It's a little bit better than kind than nice. What else? Helpful, okay. Maybe honest. Huh? Mindful. Mindful, okay, that's good. They are they maybe think about things, they're not absent minded. How about Patience, that's good. How about reliable? You can count on them. How about they always tell the truth? That's important. Faithfulness. Faithful, okay, we can put that along with reliable. Self-control. Yeah, some, oh, some fruits of the spirit maybe, right? Now, okay, hold that in your mind, this idea of being, having good character. Um, to gain that good character, how do you gain that reputation with somebody? Can you get, gain that reputation by meeting them for 10 minutes? Maybe. Can they know that you tell the truth 
always in 10 minutes? Can they know that you tell the truth one time? Yes. Okay. So how would they get to know that you tell the truth? Yes, that would be the first step. How would they get to know that you tell the truth all the time? Yeah, seeing them maybe 10 minutes again, 20 minutes another time, right? So this is a every moment counts, right? Every act that you do in your life, these things build up together to tell you what kind of a character, who you are. So everything that you do, the little things matter a lot. Now, we just, the last Bible study, we finished up the silver chair a month ago. Narnia is symbolic of what? The world of Narnia. The spiritual world. The spiritual world. Okay. Does... What is the relation of the time in Narnia to our time? Is it related? How? Um, the day in the real world is like a year in What do you mean? I mean, like, that in the story, if you spend a year in Narnia and then you come back to our world, how much time has passed? Unable to measure, right? But it feels at least the same things that were happening when you left are still happening. It's either none or, like, Two seconds, right? How about if you spend um, 25 or 30 years there and you come back? It still is either no time or two seconds. So there's no way to gauge how long has passed in one place compared to how long you are in the other. Why did C.S. Lewis write Narnia that way? Why did he put that detail in to this fantasy world? Okay, while you're thinking about that, oh, what? That's what heaven is like. But is Narnia heaven? No. No. Okay. It's okay. We're good. We're thinking, right? If what happens to every kid that goes to Narnia and then comes back to our world? Something happens to every single one of them. Okay, yes, we see that in a few people's examples. Um, not everyone's, but the majority of them. But we would assume that they can use what they've learned there in their life here. So that tells us if they take that and apply that 
to how they think what they learned in Narnia, what does that do to them? If you learn something in school and apply it to your life, what does it do to your life? It changes it, right? So everybody who ever goes to Narnia changes. Um, and it seems to everybody else here that that change happens overnight, right? Suddenly they're a different person. Uh, we see that with Eustace, right, in the silver chair that he's gone for a summer and he comes back and Polly is like, you were not like this before. Not Polly, sorry. Jill, <laughs> you are totally different. So I say that because I listen to a podcast where they go, it's like a reading companion and they're doing the magician's nephew right now. So I switched Polly for our Jill. So Jill says you're totally different. Um, <clears throat> so that tells us that then Narnia represents a spiritual world that we can change quickly by having an interaction with God's spirit, right? Everyone who changes in Narnia, they all meet Aslan. That's really the key. It's not just going to Narnia. They, they meet, they change because they meet Aslan. Um, I say that because I just told you to change your character, what do you have to do? Or to, to let people know what your character is. It takes time, right? So it can't happen instantly. <laughs> that did. <laughs> so it can't happen instantly, but didn't I just tell you that you can instant, quickly change through contact with God's spirit? How long does it take for somebody, though, to know that you've changed because you've been in contact with God's spirit? Are you sure? Have you ever heard of somebody that they asked Christ into their heart and they were a totally different person like the next day? They acted different. No? Have you ever known anybody where you've known them for a while and then all of a sudden they were different? Or you came back to school and somebody you were friends with was different the next school year? Yes. Okay, so seemingly some things can be a sudden change, right? Um, I'm going to tell you a story It's to kind of illustrate this, but from my own life to help. So when we were in Georgia, we had the idea of with the youth group down there of doing like a haunted woods walk kind of thing. Kind of like we do a haunted thing with the teens every year here. And we decided we were going to do Pilgrim's Progress. We did it in Bible study with them beforehand, and then we did a haunted Pilgrim's Progress, like walk through the woods with all the characters. And now, mind you, they had never done anything like this before. 
They actually didn't really like Halloween. They thought it was not a very Christian holiday. And, which admittedly it's not really, but um, we have ways around that. And so we, but they liked the idea of the Pilgrim's Progress and they were okay with it. And leading up to that, we had to make a lot of things for props and we had to gather costumes and we made so many things and you've probably seen some of them but it was i would spend hours painting like a skull like i would spend from like nine o'clock at night until sometimes it'd be like 1 a.m and it'd be like okay i really have to go to bed because i have to get up at 5 30 and go and go work out for the army and then go to work for the army and so we were for months and months we were building these things and then we wrote a script for it for all these parts that people had to play and we didn't even know who was going to come and more and more people just through word of mouth that new people at the church came and we had no idea who was even how many people for sure were going to show up the rehearsal night before the event and people came, we got them in their costumes, we did a walk through the whole thing, gave them everyone their scripts. And, and before we were done, we prayed. And then it was the next day, everybody came and we did it. And we had, unlike what we do here, we invited anybody who wanted to come, like from the community and who went to the church, anybody who wanted to come. And we probably had 30 to 50 people, kids and adults. Like when we, when Sarah was like, okay, they're ready, like they're in line. And we only took two or three people through at a time. And I came into like, they have kind of like um, our barn, like that size of the building. It was full, like people were everywhere. And it was like, whoa, there's a lot of people here. And we went through the whole event and the whole thing and Everything that we were worried about, God took care of. Every little aspect of whether we'd even have somebody to be a polyon. The guy who played a polyon went to school for theater. It was awesome. And somebody that we didn't know, he was a friend of somebody else at the church that came and did it. And I was the last person to leave that night I think Sarah drove separate just so we could fit stuff in both cars or whatever and I was the last person leaving and they had a gate for the campgrounds there just like we have Aslan's Acres and when I was going through there it was just the whole outcome of that event was overwhelming it felt like God's spirit was rushing over me of just how he took care of the whole thing and that was looking back now not I mean it was one of those moments that you know is powerful but looking back I've thought of that many times now as a changing point a faith building point in my life and it was one moment that was changing and that was powerful. But there were all these moments leading up to it, sitting there making tiny brush strokes all night long, making 
costumes for people, all these things, that those moments were all important to that happening as well. You couldn't have the two things separately. So why do I tell you that story? What is that, what's that illustrate? Think of the minute to win it. In Narnia, that change happens quickly. Seems like an instant change, but there were all these decisions, these events, these daily things that lead up to that change, okay? Let's go to Acts. Chapter 9. This is a familiar story for you all, I'm sure. Should be because we looked at it this past spring. Pastor did a few sermons on this. Acts chapter 9. This is about Saul. Be, as he is being changed to Paul. And as you know, what did Saul do before he became Paul? Right. Killed them, threw them in jail, whatever he could do to stop the Christian movement, the followers of Jesus. Okay. This is his sudden change here where he's headed to Damascus to go round up some other Christians. And we're going to pick up where he's journeying along the road. So chapter 9, verse 3 and 4, if you could start with those. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying to him, Okay, so let's jump down to verse 8 and 9. Saul rose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened, he saw no man, but they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat nor drink. Okay, now jump down to verse 17 through 20. This is. Um, Ananias is called by God to go um, meet Paul or Saul at this time and take care of him. Okay, verse seventeen and twenty through twenty. And Ananias went his way and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, "Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight." And be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it had been scales, and he received sight, warmth with animals, and the back of his. And when he had received me, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples, wherever he was. And straightway he preached Christ in the synagogue. Okay, 
So, this is a sudden change for Paul, right? Or Saul to Paul. Because one minute he is out arresting, hunting, literally hunting Christians. And then the next he is going to Jewish churches and now becoming Christian churches and he's telling them how great Jesus is and that they all need to follow him. The guy that he was just cursing a few days before. Pretty sudden 180 change, right? That would be the definition of, starts with a C, conversion, right? You would call that a conversion. You are converted from one thing to another. Um, another person, see, all this stuff is just my linking of things together as I've thought about these things because I wouldn't normally link this together, but C.S. Lewis, in his actual life, his real life that he lived, he was also against Christ and God. Did you know that? He was an atheist. Not his whole life, obviously. You can't write the things that he wrote that were published without being a Christian. But he set out, he was raised Irish um, Protestant, not Irish Catholic. Um, and when he became older and attended college, he eventually abandoned Christianity and became an atheist, and he actually set out to prove Christianity wrong. He decided he was going to, to write some things to disprove Christianity and to point out how stupid it was. And through that process of writing those things, he came to the realization that it wasn't stupid and he couldn't prove it wrong. He came to the opposite conclusion. And he finally came to an intellectual point where he had to give in and say, Jesus, you are real. Like, I, can't, I cannot disprove you. This is a real thing. And he actually wrote a book that's, it's not a autobiographical story of his entire life, but it's an autobiography in a sense about him coming to Christ and it's called surprised by joy by joy and he tells of this change that he has in his life um, so another person who has changed but it's not although there's a sudden change at a point he went through a process where every thing that he did affected that now you guys all went on a youth retreat. Right, some of you, your first youth retreat, some of you have been on many youth retreats. And it is um, an event where sometimes it can be a sudden change for you. Not that it has to be, but and we're not the only people who do youth events like that. Like, 
there are Christian camps and all that kind of stuff because it's a way to get intense about the Bible and intense about learning it and um, try to fill you up with something quickly. And that's really good. There's, I mean, there's a reason why we do it. We wouldn't do it if we thought it, didn't think it was helpful. But have you ever felt that, maybe you even felt this after 4-H week, that, whoa, this was all so fun. We had a great time with everybody. And then it's back to regular life. And there's always kind of a back to normal, sometimes a little bit of a letdown. You're off of that high. And that's when you tend to forget everything that you learned or forget everything that you decided. And that moment becomes like a flash in the pan. It's common. Everybody feels that way after, one, after something like that. But don't discount that feeling because even though you don't realize that every little thing like that or big thing does affect you and changes you. I want to turn to and read for you something. This is just a... You could call it a devotional book, but it's a bunch of quotes. Quotes, they're more like paragraphs of that C.S. Lewis wrote from different books of his. Um, and it's set up that you can read one a day. And this one is from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And this is him thinking about time. Right, if you just want to listen to this, he says, I should like to deal with a difficulty that some people find about the whole idea of prayer. A man put it to me by saying, I can believe in God all right, but what I cannot swallow is the idea of him attending to several hundred million beings who are all addressing him at the same moment. I have found that quite a lot of people feel this. Now the first thing to notice is that the whole sitting, oh, the whole sting of it comes in the words at the same moment. That it's difficult for people to have the idea that God can have a conversation with many people at once. So most of us can imagine God tending to any number of applicants if only they came one by one and he had an endless time to do it. So what is really at the back of this difficulty is the idea of God having to fit too many things into one moment of time. Well, this is, of course, what happens to us. Our life comes to us moment by moment. One moment disappears before the next comes along. There is room for very little in each. That is what time is like. And, of course, you and I tend to take it for granted that this is that this time series, this arrangement of past, present, and future is not simply the way life comes to us, but the way all things really exist. We tend to assume that the whole universe and God himself are always moving from past to future, just as we do. So we've kind of talked about a lot of that already. 
but he's pointing out that we are limited in how we think. We are bound to the moment that we're in, the feelings that we have in that moment. Sometimes thinking about the past, remembering the past can have an effect on us. Hoping for the future, but in the end, all you can do is do something in the very moment that you would exist. But we forget that God doesn't have to operate that way. So what does it look like for God to not to act within time? If you can answer this, you're a genius. I don't know what it looks like. Okay, so how is he going to affect you and not do it through time? I don't know. I don't know. But there are times where suddenly you say, wow, that, that changed me. Or you look back and you say, that moment changed me. That thing that I did, I didn't even know that that was going to do this to me, but it did. And you can choose to take that and do something with it afterward. And say, I'm going to keep doing that same type of thing because that was good a good change. Um, so... We want then, everybody want. well, I don't know if everybody does, but I really hope that you want to be changed by God, that you want him to change your spirit. And if you want to be transformed in your spirit, you have to have yourself ready for that. You have to make yourself available for that change. So I'm going to read to you one more quote here from C.S. Lewis. Um, this is also from Mere Christianity, which, if, has anyone heard of that book before? It's, it's heady, isn't it? Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. Just wait a few more years and try it again. I, I've, I had to do that. It's, he basically explains all of Christianity, you could say in a simple way. But they're hard concepts, but he basically, he did it as a radio talk where he would come on the radio during World, I think it was during World War II or just after. He would come on the radio each night and give a talk about something, kind of like a little sermon. And later they put it into a book. So, you understood the last one we read, right, Audrey? I actually have found that when they separate the little things out, it's easier to digest than time to digest the whole chapter. Okay, so this is what he says. What man in his natural condition has not got is spiritual life, the higher and different sort of life that exists in God. We use the same word life for both, but if you thought that both must therefore be the same sort of thing, that would be like thinking that the greatness of space and the greatness of God were the same sort of greatness. So he's saying that your physical life is not the same as your spiritual life. It, you, it's 
it's a poor way to, dis, to call both of them life. So he goes on. Um, the biological sort which comes to us through nature, that which, like everything else in nature, is always tending to run down and to decay so that it can only be kept up by incessant subsidies from nature in the form of air, food, water, etc., is bios. So he's saying your biological body, you have to constantly be taking medicine, you have to be eating, consuming things to stay alive. You're always breaking down. The spiritual life, which is in God from all eternity, and which is which made the whole natural universe is Zoe, he says. Bios has, to be sure, a certain shadowy or symbolic resemblance to Zoe, but the only sort of resemblance there is between a photo and a place, or a statue and a man, a man who ch changed from having Bios to having Zoe, would be gone through as big of a change as if a statue were changed from being carved stone to being a real man. So he says your physical essence of who you are is like a statue. But if your spirit were really to be its full potential, if you could see someone's spirit, it would be like if a statue was brought to life. Have you ever seen the, like the Greeks, marble statues of people? Or like you see the marble busts is what they call, like you get the shoulders and the head of somebody. Maybe you've seen like one of uh, like famous people in government, like Abraham Lincoln or George Washington or whoever. And you look at that and you say, well, that kind, that, I see what he looked like. He had a big nose, or he had wide set eyes, he, had, he was bald, or he was, you get an idea of what he looked like, but you don't really know him, right? You could put that statue in your house and have it there for 20 years. You might be able to recognize him then if you saw him on the street, but you wouldn't be able to recognize him by his voice. You wouldn't even know, you don't know anything about him other than what he looks like. So, we'll continue on here. He says, and that is precisely what Christianity is about. This world is a great sculptor's shop. We are the statues, and there is a rumor going around the shop that some of us are one day going to come to life. This is one of my favorite um, metaphors that C.S. Lewis has. So he has he says that you and I are like if there were a whole bunch of statues in a shop and there's a skull and there's a sculptor has sculpted you and you're just a statue in there. You ever play that game, was that Wax Museum? Where you're all 
and somebody can come around and move you around and all. So just imagine that you're a statue in a in a shop, but there's this rumor going around that one day you're all going to come alive and be able to actually move and be a real person. Like Night at the Museum. Yes. Or like Pinocchio or, you know. And he's saying, who is that? What's that rumor? Who is coming to make you alive? If you're thinking about your spirit, God, Jesus is going to come and make you a real person that you are were supposed to be when he created Adam and Eve and he created our world we were meant to be something better and we've been crippled by sin and that one day he's going to come around but here's the thing for us now it's that Jesus is going to bring his kingdom back to earth that you are going to be able to be a part of that reality there. Um, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. Yep. Okay, so you're probably wondering, okay, great. I'm a statue in a sculptor's shop. I'm going to be a real person one day. What does this have to do with minute to win it? Okay, let's read verse 42. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of a disciple, Verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. Okay. How long does it take to give somebody who needs a drink a cup of water? Maybe a moment. Doesn't it's not much of a decision, right? It's probably not that edge of a cliff decision. But it takes just a moment, okay? So hold that in your mind, right? We all, um, <clears throat> Jesus says that if you gave, it's, there's another, um, it's essentially the same verse, but another place recorded that he said that if you gave a cup of water to somebody, that you gave a cup of water to me. Jesus, okay? So hold that thought. Turn back to, or forward to Matthew 25. Have you heard the parable of the ten virgins before? The ten brides, maybe. Okay. Is that the one where they're like in the house? They are in the house. We're going to read 1 through 13 here, okay? This is one of Jesus' parables. Wherever we left off, verse 25, or chapter 25, verse 1. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins. Okay, pause. When he says the kingdom of heaven, 
that this is this is like the kingdom of heaven. That means that this is a spiritual lesson. This is what being living in my kingdom spiritually is like. Okay, and just in case you didn't know, you're one of you. Each of us is one of the ten virgins. Okay, go ahead. Okay. Oh. The kingdom of heaven is as a man traveling into a far country. He called his own servant. Oh, no, no. Sorry. Yep. 13, we were done. That's all right. That is just another. He goes into another parable. So, um, it says the King James says virgins, but it could also be. Um, interpreted brides, okay? Who's the bridegroom? It's Jesus, okay? Have you heard that before, that the church is Jesus' bride? No. Okay, that's okay. So, why... The reason for using this metaphor is that um, we are going to be married to Jesus. Okay? Does that sound weird? It should sound weird, right? It's, it's kind of a weird concept, but the idea is that you are not complete just as um, in life when a man and a woman are married together they become one right and in case you didn't know the man does things in the relationship that the woman can't do and the woman does things in the relationship that the man can't do and it's different in every relationship, but together they are better because they are together, okay? 
Now, Jesus can do whatever he wants and everything, and he's perfect, but we need that to become perfect, right? Just like the statues in the shop, they need that person to come and make them alive. So, there are five and five brides waiting for Jesus to come, right? What do five of them do while they wait? They bring oil. Because you have a wick. Anybody ever seen an oil lamp before? Yeah, I've seen the ones that straight up. Okay, very similar. This is just an old one like they would have had then. It was clay, very simple. There's just a wick, a string that goes in there. And you fill this up with oil inside and the oil goes up the wick, it wicks up, that's where that term, and then you can light it and it'll burn the oil. And then what do the other five do while they're waiting? They, they did not break oil. The important thing to note is they both fall asleep, all ten. While they're waiting, because right, we're waiting for Jesus to come, taking a while. What is the oil? What does it represent? Okay. Why does that matter? If why would that matter for the bridegroom to come? What? Okay, it's about being ready, right? What did we read in Matthew ten? What was that verse about? 10.42. We read about a cup of water, right? Doesn't take much time or who can give you a cup of water to somebody? Anyone, right? You don't even have to walk to be able to give a cup of water to someone, right? You could, you could sit there and hand out water. As, as long as you can grasp a cup and hand it to somebody. Don't have to be a genius. You don't even... You don't even have to be the most talkative, the most soft and cuddly person. You could be really rough and gruff. You don't even have to say anything. You can hand somebody a cup of water, right? So, moment by moment, you can fill your lamp. It doesn't take one big thing. It's not about dumping all the oil in at once. It might seem like sometimes where you do dump a lot in and you feel closer to God, but it's about that every moment that there are important steps. Just like thinking about the silver chair again, 
Jill had something to do every day, right? What'd she have to do? Recite the signs. Did that seem like a big, amazing, glorious job to do? No, you just said you could do that. Because that's your job, not my job. But did was there a time where that was suddenly, whoa? That was important. That mattered. Aslan sh showed up and was powerful in that moment. Right? When they when finally it mattered that that they remembered that sign when Rillian asked them to do it in the name of Aslan. All that walking one step after another, sleeping out cold nights. Remembering, though not well, the signs, that all mattered to them. If you did nothing, though, and there's nothing in your lamp, the bridegroom doesn't take those five. They're left, it says that they're left, I think it says out, or the door was shut to them. They're left out in the cold. It's an interesting thing because it says that all of those, all ten of them had the opportunity. All of them were brides. But only those who were ready were taken. So, just some thoughts on from C.S. Lewis, lessons pulled from the silver chair, and minute to win it, because every minute counts. All right? Thank you, guys.